You are listening to UBC Waco Podcast. <laughs> are you recording? Yeah. Oh, okay. We can use that as just a scratch track for now. Well, good morning again, friends. First and foremost, thank you. I'm going to cry right now. Um, thank you for inviting me to be a part of this incredibly special community for welcoming our family, for supporting us while we transition to Waco. Your love is what has made UBC so compelling for me and I'm sure for countless others. Second, what a horrible passage to start our time together. (laughs) Neither was a winner, let's be honest. Genocide, slavery, not great choices. Seriously awful, (laughs) and as horrifying as both of these scenes are, we're going to be focusing on the first one. What's sad is it's not the only or even the first story in the Bible that makes us go, wait, what? (laughs) So what do we do? We engage, we examine, we try to hear, we try to learn, We hold on to the reality that we do not have to justify atrocities simply because they happen to be recorded in scripture. And we often experience the world through a set of subconscious, self-protective, self-promoting filters. Filters that alter the way we experience our day-to-day lives and events. Our perspectives are inherently subjective formed and influenced by our families of origin, our current community structures, trauma, for the lucky among you, dopamine, and a whole host of other factors that make us the people that we are. Researchers at Ohio State University determined that mistaken eyewitness testimony accounts for over half of all wrongful convictions. We just cannot trust our own objectivity. So what does this have to do with God, the Israelites, the Egyptians? Oh, so much. The Old Testament is a history book. It's a history book in the sense that it records the oral traditions of a group of people as they both remember and interpret it. Often people argue very passionately that the Bible is 100% accurate, 100% without error. But the reality is that the authors never intended it to be factual in the way that we understand factual today. Think in terms of posterity instead of practicality. And the more the stories were told, the bigger the fish was. The Israelites practiced interpretation and embellishment in their storytelling. It was built in, a cultural practice that we get to observe centuries later. They actively looked for ways that God was in practice in their lives. God was in action. God was on their side. That was their inherent filter. If we have a hard time understanding what would drive someone to record history in such a subjective manner, if it just doesn't make sense to our uh, 
post-enlightenment, post-millennial brains. All we have to do is look at the wholly inaccurate accounts of our own nation's history that are being taught in many schools right now throughout our country. The asinine assertion that chattel slavery benefited those who were enslaved is an egregious twisting, a sadistic reality, something that simply did not happen. Rewriting history is still a very common practice, even more so when it was the cultural norm as it was for the ancient Near East. So we have the Israelites, the Israelites whose words we read, the Israelites who were suffering under Egyptian enslavers. And as they escaped, they saw the events they experienced and they named it the rescue of God. They named it the fulfillment of the liberation that was promised to them from their leaders, Moses and Aaron. They had found protection and love in their understanding of God and what a beautiful thing that is. And their telling of the events reflects that understanding. And we don't know for sure what happened or did not happen on that day. But this story can still inform some important things about God. And it can give us some insight into how God's nation viewed God's actions in their lives. So let's consider this pillar this pillar of cloud that moved into place between Egypt and Israel. What does it tell us about God and God's nature? God placed a barrier between the vulnerable and the victimizer. God's protection for the weak, for the underdog, for the exploited is made clear Enfolded in this cloud that lit up the night, Israel had a literal, physical boundary that kept them safe. There are some implications from that, and there are some implications that go beyond that. You know, when we read the Old Testament, we usually focus on the story of the Israelites. That makes sense, right? It's how we're being taught. It's from whose perspective we're understanding events, but I try to be curious about things beyond uh, that first most obvious path. And so today I'm wondering how these, uh, these events affected the Egyptians. The villains of the story, clearly, the ones perpetrating these unspeakable crimes, owning other humans, egregious acts against their fellow people. At the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and cloud looked down on the Egyptian army and threw the Egyptian army into a panic. He clogged their chariot wheels so that they turned with difficulty. So we can take this little section and we can look at it a couple of different ways. We can say, oh yes, God is protecting the Israelites. That's who God cares about. And God is punishing their enemies. Certainly a valid perspective. It's the one that the Israelites themselves held and recorded. But I wonder about the second option. The second option that God is indeed protecting the Israelites and is also protecting the Egyptians. Protecting the Egyptians from continuing to dehumanize and devalue their fellow humans because it also dehumanizes the Egyptians. 
there is time and time and time again that God's justice is clear. It's shown in our lives. It's shown in scripture. Hurting others, oppressing others, using others always comes at a cost. But when we divorce God's justice from God's love, compassion, and peace, as I know I am prone to do, we risk remaking God in our own definition of fairness. We turn God into a revenge machine, and we call down atrocities on others who have committed atrocities against others. And while accountability and consequences are absolutely components of God's justice, I don't remember Jesus teaching, oppress those who oppress you in his sermon on the mount. Although if I got to write things, just saying. God's love is not contained to one group or one people. God is not only the God of the Israelites. God is not only the God of America, of the Protestants, of the Baptists. God is not only the God of the select or the elite, because God is the God of the vulnerable, the rejected, the hurting, the confused, the doubters, and the unbelievers. And God is fully invested in reclaiming the hearts of those who hurt and damage and victimize and oppress. It is perhaps one of the most painful things to wrap our minds around. The God's expansive love and restoration is for anyone and everyone. And while that can cause us to take a breath, a sigh of relief, there's that nagging that that one person who did that one thing shouldn't get that gift. So what do we do with this information? And what do we do with what comes next in our text? Let us flee from the Israelites for the Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. There was consensus that they weren't going to win this fight. And it seemed like they were finally walking away. And then bam, wall of water, sudden death. Okay, weird flex. Did God genuinely, truly drown the Egyptians? The Egyptians who were cutting ties, cutting their losses? Or do we perhaps have a case of unreliable eyewitness testimony? Perhaps we simply have a historical document that is told from the perspective and for the benefit of one nation. Because let's be honest, the Israelites have a major case of main character energy. They center themselves in every single story because that was their norm. That was the cultural practice. Their account of events was for them and in their estimation brought the most honor to their God. They ran everything they experienced through their own filter of uniqueness, of being God's people, of being a nation set apart. And that narrative will weave in and out of the entirety of the Old Testament. 
It was so inextricably linked to their identity that it eventually morphed into an insider, outsider mentality. And that mindset, that mentality, in part, led to the crucifixion of Jesus. It is oh so easy to revel in the downfall of someone that we think has it coming. A juicy little snack when you're laying in bed. It is much, much harder and the way of Christ to want restoration for others. Now that doesn't mean that people will go or should go without accountability or consequences because again, these things accompany God's justice or it's not justice. It doesn't mean that we have to be okay. It doesn't mean that we have to forgive or succeed at doing the work of wanting good things for people that we deem unworthy. But attributing genocide to God's will or revenge to God's nature is, at best, shaky ground. It is ground we will encounter again. As we get to know the nation of Israel more and more over the coming weeks, we will see how many events are told through the perspective of their own specialness, their uniqueness as God's chosen people. But for today, I hope that we can keep in mind the purpose of the narrative of God's actions as told from the perspective of the Israelites, from one perspective, from one eyewitness account. Now, if the Egyptian army did indeed die this horrifying death, I simply cannot fathom a reality where God celebrated that. We remember God's presence with those who are persecuted. We hold fast to the reality that God is always active in the work of liberation. And we do our best, our very best, to hope for the humanity to return to those who harm others. Because the ways of Christ often invite us into this space of tension. We endeavor to hold them all together as faithfully as we can. In the words of the ineffable queen, Taylor Swift, <laughs> I want to be defined by the things I love, not the things I hate, not the things that I'm afraid of, not the things that haunt me in the middle of the night, I just think that you are what you love. And your highness, I agree. UBC, may the tension of God's love for all invite us into a space of greater love for those we encounter. May we seek liberation for those who are vulnerable and oppressed. And may we seek the fullness of justice for those who harm Justice that holds accountable and justice that carries with it the hope of restoration. Amen. As is a beautiful practice here at UBC, let's take some space, collectively invite the spirit to come and speak, remind us of something we know is true, gently hold us as we're dealing and processing, correct anything that I have said incorrectly.